0: Hello, and welcome to the Library Cafe. I'm Thomas Hill. Today, I'm going to be talking with Yvonne Alette, Associate Professor of Art here at Vassar College, about her article, Beatrix Ferrand and Campus Landscape at Vassar, Pedagogy and Practice, 1925 to 1929. Co-authored with Virginia Duncan and published in the journal, Studies in the History of Gardens and Designed Landscapes in 2018. Welcome back on the show, Yvonne. Thank you, Tom. It's great to have you back again. So the last time you were here on the program, we were talking about a major architectural monument that was actually built, Raphael's Villa Madama, outside of Rome. But uh, although there is a building to look at there, the building is and always has been something of a building idea or plan in progress some of which was never completed. Now we're looking at a landscape plan by a a great landscape architect of the 20th century, Beatrix Ferrand, that was also never completely realized, although there are fragments of this, too, that remain here on campus today. So it reminds me a bit also of my last program on the show here, where I talked with our colleague Lindsay Cook about a building plan that never was built at all for the Vassar campus by Philip Johnson, something of a sort of Raphael like figure himself in the history of modernism. So uh, I suppose the question is, is there a moral here? Maybe about buildings and landscapes existing as gleams in their architects' eyes, some never being fully realized in the real world, but nonetheless might be worth studying.
1: Yes, it's the history of design in all fields. The, the world's filled with designs that were never fully implemented or sometimes not even started. And as you know, architectural historians concern themselves with the unbuilt as well as the built. There's a famous book in my field titled San Pietro che non c'est, St. Peter's that isn't or Uh that might have been, analyzing a whole host of unbuilt designs for the great basilica in Rome that Uh functioned as the epicenter of Western architectural practice for so long. And that, of course, was partly due to a rotating cast of popes, Uh people, patrons, and their representatives. Pontificates and lives are short, architecture projects Uh are long, so to speak. And although it's not directly analogous, you could make the same point about campus planning. Uh-huh. Uh, rotating uh-huh. boards of trustees, yeah. building committee members, college presidents, influential yeah. donors, a whole host of campus stakeholders form this kind of shifting yeah. framework for campus projects.
0: So even when things do get built, sometimes they don't get fully built, and there are traces that you can see, but, which is the case here with Beatrix Ferrand's plan.
1: Absolutely.
0: So who was Beatrix Ferrand, and how did she become interesting to Vassar's planners?
1: Beatrix Farron was the foremost woman architect, landscape architect in the United States Mm. uh, at the time of this story, the 1920s. And she was a landscape architect in spite of her gender. She was the leading figure in a very, very small new wave of women entering the profession Uh despite what were daunting obstacles at the time. There was no access to formal professional training, and of course there was great difficulty in supervising men in the field. But she managed to get an education by apprenticing with Charles Sprague Sargent, who was the director of the famous Arnold Arboretum outside of Boston, Uh who was a family friend. She actually moved in with his family and lived there for three years Uh and became his star pupil. She convinced a civil engineer at Columbia to tutor her for a while in engineering. And then she went on a grand tour of European and English gardens with her oh. aunt, Edith Wharton. Edith
0: Wharton was her aunt, so yep, interesting. At, right, And
1: it was right at the time when Wharton was writing a series of articles that would ultimately be gathered to become her book, Italian Villas and Gardens. Oh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So there were obstacles, but she managed to pull together quite an education so that she was the only female founding of ASLA, of the American Society of Landscape uh-huh. Architects. Really unusual for a woman at the time, she not only did domestic commissions for the country houses of people in her social circle, but also institutional ones. She was the landscape gardener at Princeton and Yale before she came uh-huh. here, uh-huh. which is probably how she came to Basser's attention. Uh-huh. And she later went on to work at the University of Chicago, Occidental, Hamilton, Oberlin, a whole host of campuses. But interestingly, Vassar was her only opportunity to work at a women's college. Uh
0: There is some precedent in the field with Gertrude Jekyll, right? She's a famous landscape architect, one of the most Mm -hmm. famous landscape architects to come out of Europe. Absolutely.
1: And she met with and studied the designs of Gertrude Jekyll during her Uh grand tour. And Jekyll was influential for Farron's work. So as I said, there were a small number. I mean, there was Maria Teresa Parpagliolo Shepard working Uh in Rome. That was a bit later, I guess, in the 30s. Uh, Ellen Biddle Shipman here in the United States, but Farron was one of the earliest in this country. And in this country, there simply was no education.
0: So can you talk about the history of design on Vassar's campus and its plantings from the early years until Farron arrived?
1: Sure. It's always striking to people who are familiar with Vassar's verdant, you know, bucolic, tree-covered campus to learn that at the time the college was constructed, it was completely barren. It had been a racetrack beforehand and surrounded by rolling farmland. And so James Renwick, Jr., who was the architect of Maine Building, the monumental structure that originally comprised the whole campus, doubled as the original landscape architect by doing a few things around Maine and the approach to it. And of course, Matthew Vassar, the college's founder, certainly envisioned a more verdant setting uh-huh. and was known to be out with a shovel himself planting trees oh, really? to get yeah. things going uh-huh. and trying to drag the faculty into it. He had worked closely with Andrew Jackson Downing. Uh-huh. on Great American landscape uh, architect. Absolutely, sure. on Vassar's own estate, Springside, near here. So uh-huh. he had really absorbed Downing's picturesque and uh-huh. varied style. But Downing died before the college got going, so he was not involved here. So as the college grew out of its space in Maine, of course, it built new buildings, uh, expanded its grounds by acquiring neighboring parcels of farmland. But the result of this kind of two-step, the original college and then the later expansion, is that there are kind of two systems of landscape design here. Uh Main building itself is oriented to the cardinal directions, and the mostly north-south axis of the Hudson River. Yeah, Interesting,
0: because Raymond Avenue is not, is it? The street plan for Poughkeepsie, or Arlington anyway, is not.
1: uh, No, it's not at all, And, and Raymond, which is the street that runs more or less in front of the campus is roughly north-south, but it's more northeast to southwest, and as you know, winds. It's been widened over time. So the idea was that it was ideal to have a building that was oriented with an axial approach, and then as they expanded it, they built a series of buildings around a giant square quadrangle. So that hole that's bordered on the west by the main gate, on the south by the president's house and a chapel, on the north by Rockefeller Hall classroom, building, and yeah. dorm. So there's a giant quadrangle sort of in front of Maine that is oriented. That's one system of landscape. Uh-huh. You know, it's, it's strongly geometric, it's axial, it's oriented. The other system is much more picturesque, and it's oriented according to the topography of uh-huh. the landscape, the, the hills, the, the valleys, the creeks. And so it is always a little bit disorienting the minute you get behind Main building and move into different areas of the uh-huh. campus, how different those feel. But in terms of how the, um, you know, you asked how the design happened. At that point, Vassar brought in a succession of landscape architects to design these various expansions and developed a habit of asking them for master plans, realizing bits of them, then dismissing each landscape architect and Uh moving on to Uh another one. Uh So Vassar has effectively traditionally hired landscape consultants but kept control of the landscape design itself. Yeah. For example, Frederick Law Olmsted Sr. was here together with Calvert Vox, and they were hired to propose revisions to the campus. Oh. It's not clear they actually designed much or that yeah. anything was implemented. Yeah,
0: so there's nothing extant in plants or anything like not that. At know, Olmsted, not at all, not at all, and everybody's looked,
1: yeah. uh, including Olmsted, the Olmsted firm back oh, in the 20s. Yeah. Then Samuel Parsons, infamous for having imported the chestnut blight, was another <laughs> of our landscape architects yeah. who created an unexecuted plan for Maine. Loring Underwood served as a campus landscape architect for 10 years. He was the one who dammed the Casper Kill stream to Uh create uh, Sunset Lake for ice skating Uh and the open-air amphitheater we all still use for graduation. Well, we
0: have big signs now, no skating. Safety has put that to bed.
1: So Underwood was here from 1915 to 25, but several things in the early 20s set the stage for Ferrin's hiring. First was the acquisition of several parcels of farmland Mm -hmm. that allowed for expansion. Second was the largest gift in the college's history up to that point by an alumna, Minnie Blodgett, to create a new campus quadrangle out Mm -hmm. to the northeast edge of the property devoted to Mm euthanics. And finally was the desire to to create an arboretum.
0: Uh So what was the administrative climate like when Farron was hired, and what forces were at work in the decision-making processes that formed the campus landscape plan at that moment? Because you talk about that in the article.
1: Yeah, the selection of a landscape architect was actually the responsibility of Vassar's Grounds Committee then, which was a subcommittee Uh of the the Board of Trustees. And it was a distinguished group. Uh, In 1925, it consisted of... FDR, uh-huh. who, was, who lived locally and was in <laughs> yeah. private legal practice. Uh, this was just before his election as governor uh-huh. in 28. Uh-huh. Also on the committee were Russell Leffingwell, who was a prominent banker and had uh-huh. been, uh, assistant secretary of the Treasury. Queen Ferry Coonley, the uh-huh. a Vassar alumna who had been a patron of Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh-huh. And it uh, was chaired by Raymond Guernsey, who was a local uh-huh. attorney and college counsel and close to the president. So it seems that they chose Farron on the strength of her work at Princeton and Yale. Uh-huh. But they also knew her and knew her work through social yeah. connections. FDR surely knew her Belfield garden for his next-door neighbor uh-huh. uh, in oh, Hyde Park. Yeah. Yeah. They, they were yeah. cousins of, uh, of hers. Yeah. Uh, and it's not clear how fully they understood her work, but she was really ideally suited for Vassar at that moment. You know, She was known for these brilliant plays of formality and informality, uh-huh. her attention to local landscape, her embrace of native yeah. species... And so it was really perfect for Vassar's uh, embassies.
0: Plus she was a woman, and Vassar did have a reputation even at that time of hiring prominent professional women on the faculty, for one thing, right from the very get-go, right from the beginning. Absolutely, and it made
1: for an interesting kind of confluence of women working in Uh, uh, landscape at the time. Yeah,
0: interesting. So are students involved in these design processes, or do they have some kind of role in deciding about campus architecture at this point? Not to my knowledge, um, although they
1: trumpeted it in the miscellany news with a headline, woman appointed consulting landscape architect. But they were kind of indirectly involved in establishing the need for somebody else. In 25, the botany professor and the groundskeeper together organized the first of a series of garden conferences here for uh-huh. alumni, and students gave demonstrations of their horticulture and botany projects. Uh-huh. And then everybody led the alums on to visits to local gardens and tours of the campus, pointing out what they would like to yeah. have and uh-huh. what, the, you know, what the campus was lacking. And the, the first one was evidently particularly inspiring. Students you know, wrote about potential of Vassar to lead all the women's colleges in the study of horticulture and botany. Uh And it was immediately after that that an alumna gave a generous donation to establish an arboretum and maintain it. Uh So with that in hand, that's when Vassar fired Warren Underwood and brought Farrington Uh with a specific idea that she would would, institute the arboretum.
0: So how does the curriculum on campus tie in with the evolution of the college's landscape design, you know, in the built environment sort of generally? Because it does, doesn't it? Uh,
1: Absolutely. It's really striking how much emphasis Vassar has placed on landscape and nature, both in planning and in the curriculum, really from the outset. It's been a leitmotif throughout its history.
0: Yeah, so the campus is literally a learning environment for students, isn't it? it absolutely. It's yeah. been
1: understood that way. Now, of course, botany and horticulture were long considered appropriate subjects of study for women, for women. Yeah, um, uh-huh. relevant to what was understood as their responsibilities to design and maintain a domestic yeah. environment you know, of the home. Yeah. But by the 20s, both on the campus and nationally, I mean, it was a period of, we all know, profound social, cultural upheaval about what women's roles yeah, should uh-huh. be. And one manifestation here was particularly progressive curricular initiatives in landscape architecture, in the curriculum and you know, for professional development, and also in native plant ecology. Uh-huh. And that was when, uh, it was 1919, when Bassor hired the brilliant botanist Edith Roberts, uh-huh. who was a plant ecologist. This was incredibly early. Uh, and she was specializing in the conservation of native plantings. Uh-huh. And she had trained at the University of Chicago under the great ecologist Coles. Uh-huh. And it was in the forefront of people translating prairie style ideas, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. both, you know, yeah. frankly, writing yeah. landscape um, to the Northeast and advocating a kind of sense of place in uh-huh. American landscape. Uh-huh. And so she and her students established a garden along here on campus, along the Fountain Kill uh-huh. stream, that was completely dedicated to native plants. And she and her colleagues got in a car, drove around oh, no, okay. the county oh, no. in the 20s collecting these plants. Oh. It expanded to seven acres, and it comprised over 600 species of plants in their native oh. environmental associations or communities. And it's been disrupted over time. You know, yeah. The music building, oh, yeah. sure, the new yeah. bridge building for laboratory science are plunked right in the middle of what was that garden. So oh. plants have been disturbed, oh. yeah. invasives have come in, but it's being restored by Uh, biology professor Meg Ronsheim now once again the study uh, Uh the subject of study but based on Robert's work in the garden she published several influential articles and a book that constituted a really important early manifesto on ecologically based landscape design Uh Uh and she brought in like-minded collaborators like the landscape architect Elsa Raymond Uh and instituted the teaching of landscape architecture here Uh and Vassar held many programs promoting professional opportunities for women because by this point there were a couple schools where women could study and so I found a lot of notices in the school paper with headlines like, Landscape Architecture, a New Profession Open to Modern Girls. Uh-huh, that's uh that's great. You know, so they were very <laughs> yeah. specifically uh-huh. fostering yeah.
0: ways to train, places yeah. to and, train. And, and bes- besides doing that, they're serving as role models for these uh, students, aren't they? Uh, b- both Roberts and Farron. Absolutely. And Raymond,
1: yeah. there was uh, yeah. Betty yeah. Mead, there was yeah. this yeah. whole group of women who were here at the same time. And it was successful to a point. I found one survey from the late 20s that talked about how landscape architecture was the fourth most common postgraduate occupation of Vassar women oh, after oh, teaching, uh, social work uh, and uh, I think writing. Yeah, kind of so the idea that landscape architecture would go from being nearly impossible to yeah. fourth most popular uh-huh. so quickly this was rather astounding. So that was exactly the moment when Farron came. She wrote that she was excited to work at a women's college for the first time. Uh-huh. And it was exactly when these pioneering women, botanists, ecologists, and landscape architects were making their mark in the curriculum, job coaching, and looking at different ways women's roles could be fostered using ecological approaches uh-huh. uh, to solve kind of progressive social problems. Oh, oh,
0: absolutely interesting and very relevant today, isn't it? So, given the fact that a lot of our social problems have to do with climate and landscapes. Is there a wider story here going on uh, about uh, campus landscape architecture generally? You know, uh, is this sort of thing happening in other institutions besides Vassar? The development of this kind of curriculum, say, and the involvement of Students in campus design.
1: Well, you know the intense emphasis on natives uh, and ecology was Uh not completely unique, but it was kind of unusual, and the extent of it was unusual. But as you know, the whole you know the subject of the American campus is uh, kind of a distinctive landscape typology, and yeah, yeah, um, you know we borrowed some elements from Oxbridge, but yeah. the results were very much... Very a, different, yeah. No, it's a, very we're, American. Were very, very it's different. very much a kind
0: of an American overlay. Uh, it corresponds, doesn't it, to Hudson River School painting and writing that's going on uh, in American literature. So
1: Exactly, yeah. uh, especially in the, the late 19th century. But there, there are so many different models from the kind of holistically planned uh, University of Virginia, yeah. that Thomas Jefferson foresaw, to uh-huh. yeah. much more varied landscape styles like here. Or schools with central meeting places or, you know, schools that don't have them, like yeah. here. And even the whole model of, a, of schools starting out as one building and then spooling out oh. the various functions into standalone buildings, yeah. you know, was not unique to Vassar. So it's interesting to see at times it was kind of in step with the trends. Sometimes it was yeah. following, sometimes it was, it was very much uh, leading the way, very
0: progressive. Landscape architecture... Internationally, is Vassar part of this story in some ways, or or, or is there a movement going on that we draw on? Or, um, I mean, is there an even wider context than the national campus context, I guess?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I mentioned that Farron went on this grand tour Uh of Europe and England looking at gardens uh, and, and met with many, many. Landscape designers and writers. Yeah, like Jekyll Yep, yeah, during uh, her travels. Yeah. So, you know, just, just speaking specifically about Farron here, her mix of formal and informal designs, as I mentioned earlier, very much drew on some of Jekyll's designs. Yeah. But Farron would go ahead to forge a kind of uniquely American synthesis uh-huh. of all of, uh, of these elements, okay. drawing on Italian plans, English beds, focusing a lot on function and circulation, and emphasizing native species. Uh-huh.
0: So uh, does any of this bleed into what Downing is doing, or Vaux is doing, or yes, to a
1: certain extent. I mean, when you, I mean, you go they, to
0: Central Park, you see native species, don't you? So
1: yes, absolutely. I mean, their their most direct design inspirations came out of the English picturesque landscape uh-huh, yeah. tradition, and well, Farron did different things uh, in her domestic and her institutional projects as well. You know, her institutional Dumbarton Oaks, of course, uh, which she did the yeah. Bliss family, was her grand kind of uh masterwork. But then her institutional work was necessarily somewhat different. And if anything, she took inspiration from the arts and crafts movement Uh for sort of simplicity, the emphasis on materials, sort of the unity of craft and design. And for campus landscape design, she focused most of her attention on framing and circulation using trees, shrubs, lawns and vines. And she pretty much eschewed flowers other than oh, spring bulbs. Uh-huh. And some of that went along with Edith Wharton's ideas, uh, uh-huh. you know, her disdain for flower loveliness as yes, yeah. uh-huh. a tr- sort of traditionally yeah. feminine thing. But partly it was a pragmatic approach to the fact that campuses are frequented most in, yeah. you know, not, you not, know, in, the summer, summer. not in the yeah, summer. Yeah, yeah. So she repeatedly told her campus clients that spring and fall color is what should be privileged, uh-huh. spring bulbs, and then vines, and uh, espaliered trees that could be pruned to Uh provide uh, kind of different textures and foliage during the seasons, but to leave walkways basically open and flexible.
0: You do notice it, I notice it living on campus here, that spring and the fall are just spectacular on campus, Uh, whereas the summer, you know, there are plantings. I mean, we put annuals all over the place, but they look kind of sad compared to what happens when the bulbs all come up and also when the trees turn Uh, and our current emphasis on annuals
1: is, not, is something she would probably have been yeah, horrified no, at. Yeah, well, I'm horrified at it, to tell you the truth. So.
0: so can you talk about the idea of the Arboretum? Was that her idea, or was it was she just brought in to implement it? Uh, the idea to do
1: an Arboretum predated her hiring. I yeah, mean, it did. You know, yeah, Matthew see, yeah. Vassar had, from the beginning, conceived that the college would have a varied terrain planted with ornamental trees, conifers, uh-huh, fruit trees, yeah. Flower gardens, he wanted a botanical garden, you know, that took a while. And as early as the 1860s, Vassar established the tradition for each graduating class to plant a tree Uh or a grove of trees that continues today. So, you know, there had been a certain amount of greening before that. But the president at the time, McCracken, had discussed instituting an arboretum a few years Uh before, and then that conference that I mentioned, uniting Edith Roberts and the groundskeeper Uh and the students Uh and the alums was what really put it on the map. But interestingly, what I found as I delved into the archives is that everybody had a different idea of what the Arboretum should be, uh-huh. here uh-huh. and more broadly. There were sort of changing ideas, sort of in concept, form, and function. It could be a collection of rare trees and shrubs, or a collection of different varieties of the same trees and shrubs. Mm -hmm. They disagreed over whether it should be all native species or not, and they disagreed over whether it should occupy a discrete site or whether it should comprise planting scattered over the grounds more broadly. And so various Vassar constituents emphasized completely different functions, from teaching tool to campus Mm -hmm. beautification. So there was no clear mandate from the beginning. All of these ideas were on the table. But Farron had been thinking about these issues already at Yale where she was affiliated with the Marsh Botanical Garden yeah. obviously with her connections to the Arnold Arboretum and so she had written thoughtfully about the role of an arboretum its practical and ideological functions and its relation to the botanical garden and the nursery
0: she uh-huh. was a big proponent of uh-huh. nurseries yeah, for, for you, campus yeah you need a nursery of some kind if you're going to have a garden of this size don't you just to keep keep you know yes indeed planted, for
1: practical yeah, yeah, for practical yeah. reasons uh, and she brokered uh, the exchange of plants among various campuses. You know, uh-huh. Princeton, Vassar, yeah, or the Arnold Arboretum. Yeah, Harvard and that had was, an Ar- Arboretum, didn't That was the yeah, Arnold. And that was one okay. of the things she brought to the table, was yeah. that she could get uh-huh. specimens out yeah, of the Arnold Arboretum, Arboretum huh. which was not a simple yeah. thing to do. Uh-huh. So she was yeah. able to bring in some interesting yeah. species her connections at a lower cost. She wrote rather beautifully about her ideas about an arboretum, and she said she wanted each campus to be a museum of trees, mm-hmm. and she saw the arboretum and the landscape in general as an educational tool that she specified should be as instructive as the inside of a classroom. Which would have been really consonant with the approach of Vassar historian Lucy Maynard Salmon uh-huh. uh, at the time, and her emphasis on history in your backyard, yeah, yeah exactly. You know, the idea that history yeah. is all, you know, history is all around us. Learning is yeah. all around us. Yeah.
0: And Charles Burroughs also was all about the same thing about I mean, not having to go out on field trips to find specimens to learn about science. Yes, indeed.
1: Yeah. So after a lot of discussion among Farron, the grounds committee, the gardener, the Vassar Arboretum began with plantings along both campus lakes uh-huh. so they brought in 20 kinds of viburnum and 9 kinds of bush honeysuckle that the yeah. Arnold Arboretum donated and they planted them all along Vassar Lake an area uh-huh. that's terribly overgrown now yeah. and then along Sunset Lake she chose yes. flowering crab apples and cherry trees, uh-huh. the, the reflections of which you would see in yeah, the you water you can still
0: see the, uh, the orchard there so, yes. yeah.
1: Yeah. and she was interestingly doing something similar along Princeton's Lake Carnegie at the uh-huh. time uh-huh. Which, which you still yeah. see so that was the beginning of the arboretum along kind of a pathway that went along one lake to the uh, other and uh, it spread from there.
0: Uh, it's still a beautiful link, the kill that links the two here. There were springs when I would walk along and the flowers were just wonderful along the kill itself. So along the fountain kill. Yeah, along the fountain, yeah. Yeah, that's the Edith Roberts garden. Some of those, oh, is it? Some okay, of those yeah. glorious
1: old azaleas yeah, um, yeah. that are our native species. Yeah. So that became part of the Arboretum eventually yeah. as well. And
0: then of course the lake itself with the uh, orchard in the spring is really just still quite spectacular. It used to be more so when it was all planted with daffodils. I think we've cut those back, the mowers uh, over the years, but when they I started here in the 90, 80s 90, 90 yeah, the yeah. Yeah. Um, there were daffodils all up and down the, in the hillside there with the, with the trees. So.
1: That must have been glorious. Yeah, it
0: was. And I think we had a daffodil budget that we had to spend every year. I mean it was a sizable amount of money for just planting Daffodils, I think that's probably gone now. But, I
1: remember uh, reading that there were specific appeals to uh, alumni to yeah. give, 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 give daffodil homes and Mark money Alps, for yeah. them. Okay. Yeah.
0: so interesting. Are there then traces of Ferran's planning left on campus that are still evident?
1: There are. First and foremost, it was her idea to treat the entire campus as an armarino, yeah. uh-huh. which is a notion that's I, I see. completely yeah. familiar yeah. to us today, yeah. but it was rather new then. And she had voiced that conception elsewhere before she came to Vassar. And immediately after her first meeting here, it was enthusiastically embraced by everybody on campus, although she wasn't given the credit she deserved for it. So the whole idea of establishing the Arboretum as a campus-wide entity and this multivalent vehicle for propagating trees and shrubs, native and foreign, for so many functions, practical and educational, and aesthetic was hers. And so you know, for that alone, we're indebted to her. She also was instrumental in designing the placement of select buildings, uh-huh. paths, and landscape elements in the so-called Euthenics Quad, where yeah. today Blodgett, Wimpheimer, Kenyon, and Cushing Halls stand, yeah. uh-huh. and so the siting of those buildings and the paths between them. Uh, the sighting of Kendrick across the street and Uh in the forecourt of the main building itself. Yeah,
0: beautiful photographs you have of Kendrick and a garden that used to sort of surround the building there that's now gone, especially on the uh, north side of the building there, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's sad that that's been replaced by a parking lot. Parking
0: lot. lot. You mentioned that the arboretum, there were divided opinions on what it should be, but it also was a unifier in some ways, and that it created community, especially in the kind of ceremonies that went into the planting of trees for students. I mean, there was a day when students planted trees, isn't there a ceremonial day? I think we still have it, but there have been years when you you don't hear about it or read about it, so yeah.
1: Well, the class tree program predated her and has has outlasted her, and the, the ceremony, Ceremonies. Each class still chooses a tree. The class of 2020 has already chosen their tree. Uh-huh. Um, it's going to be a, a grove of aspens, I believe, oh. that will reclaim an area that is kind of currently overgrown with invasive vines. Oh, I see. Uh-huh. So it, they become almost like reclamation projects oh, sometimes uh-huh. too, not just plunking yeah. a tree and you know mm-hmm. into a lawn. So it's a very long tradition that has continued.
0: Yeah, at one time there were ceremonies. I mean, it was pretty elaborate. Wasn't yeah, students enough? dressed up as yeah. druids, yeah. and yeah, you can imagine in, in, in the early teens. Yeah. I don't. I think yeah.
1: they've left that. Part behind. But the idea that this now contributes to the entire campus being an arboretum, uh-huh. you're, you're absolutely yep. right. Uh-huh. It's, it's fosters, it's, it's more than just planting a tree. Yeah, it, it fosters a, yeah, a sense of community.
0: Idea, a, sense of community yeah. Yeah. a sense of
1: community and yeah. a sense of literally leaving something of yourself behind and being yeah. kind of rooted, no pun intended, uh-huh. in the place for students and being of this arboretum, yeah. you know, everybody comes back and visits the Yeah, tree. well,
0: exactly, yeah. alums come back, so the community extends back in time. It's not just the people who were here for four years, it's... Uh, and forward. Yeah, and forward, yeah. As those so, trees yeah, grow. Yeah. So what about the approach to main building? Didn't Ferrand have something to do with that?
1: She did indeed. That was one of the big projects she worked on. And the main, as you know well, the main gate of the college, although it's changed over time, has always framed the axial view of a long drive leading to, to main the building. building. yeah. Uh, it's been lined by evergreens since the beginning, since the 1860s, although they're currently so tall they yeah. block the, yeah. the view of the building. Pines, yeah. But from the earliest sketches for the college through the realization of Renwick's building, the area in front of it had featured three flat green circles of grass, uh-huh. each one centered before one of the three pavilions of the main building. Yeah which I presume were formal vestiges of French garden fountains and parterres. Yeah, the building
0: itself is based on Versailles, right? Oh, the, so, tuileries, uh, the, the tuileries, pavilion, tuileries. The Tuileries Palace, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: So that's pretty much all that had been there were these yeah. three grass circles. And main building, in addition to being monumental and elongated, is defined by having a central pavilion, yeah. two narrow side wings, and then protruding end pavilions. Yeah. And so she formulated a landscape plan for a forecourt in front of the central pavilion and for so-called quadrangles formed by the protruding end pavilions, all in front of the building in front of Maine. And her idea was for that forecourt to be a square courtyard directly in front of the center, framed by Japanese yew hedges that would serve as a kind of entry zone or almost a room in Uh front of the main entrance, rather formal. And then in the quadrangle, she scattered yews and flowering trees, Uh hawthorns, crab apples, that would be chosen for spring or fall color and stay relatively short so they wouldn't block the windows and the light of the building. So she juxtaposed the formal hedged courtyard as an entry pavilion with these more informal plantings in the side wings and that kind of formal-informal is exactly yeah. what she's known for. Yeah. She did yeah. something similar at Princeton yeah. uh, as an entry zone for their campus. And that's the basic schema, but her plans went through many, many revisions, yeah. um, which I traced, as you saw, yeah. through a series of plans and through the meeting notes and yeah. other documents. And it wasn't fully implemented at the time. She was here because of the cost needed to widen the road in front of the building, which was finally done much later with Rockefeller funding in the 1960s when her scheme was Uh revived uh uh, and a kind of revised uh, version of it was partially implemented, uh although the logic was a bit muddled. And I've stood there with my students with the plans in hand, And it's fascinating that they who know the campus so well and have gone in and out of those doors and used the bicycle racks and know through experience the frustrations of how you can't get where you want to go because you're blocked by a hedge or a Mm -hmm. missing path could appreciate at a glance the logic of her plan uh, and really wish that it had been implemented exactly
0: as designed. Would it be too late to implement it now if you were to go back and try? It probably
1: probably wouldn't. I mean, things have changed, but it would be glorious to do it. But the basic schema is there in Mm -hmm. front of Maine. It has all the basic elements, if not the logic. Visible architecture punctuated with assorted vines, naturalized quadrangles with the flowering trees and ewes, one central grass plot and the formal clipped U hedges are all yeah. there. So it's a very clear echo of what she had in mind. There
0: used to be a lot more ivy on the building at one time, wasn't there? She oh, hated yeah. ivy. She, hated she always ivy. said Boston okay. <laughs> ivy was designed
1: yeah. to hide ugly buildings. But was it? Okay. And so she really argued with her clients said, about getting rid of Boston yeah, ivy. Uh-huh. But what she did privilege was training more interesting vines Uh and even espaliering entire trees Uh on the facades Uh of buildings to leave open space in courtyards and quadrangles Mm -hmm. for circulation, but to give visual and textural interest in various points of the year. And that's something that there was... Uh, wisteria on the front of Maine, yeah. I think, at oh, her assistance here. And there are pictures yeah. of Maine with
0: beautiful purple, yeah. Beautiful
1: yeah. purple in, in very yeah. sculpted but areas. Fragrant also, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. which is completely gone now. Yeah. But Princeton, in particular, has done a wonderful job of continuing her designs for vines. And so there are landscape architects yeah. published articles on what they do to keep up. Well, part of
0: the administrative complaint here is that Vassar is so expensive to keep up because there is so much in the way of grounds to keep up compared to other campuses. And they're often loath to spend money on that, and wisteria does take upkeep, doesn't it? It certainly yeah, does. Yeah, I'm, I'm not yeah,
1: being critical. I'm just yeah, saying, yeah. you know, for an instance of what she really visualized yeah, with vines yeah, on yeah. buildings, it was not Boston ivy, yeah, it was all it was, these you know, other vines yeah, and yeah, trees, yeah. and Princeton is where you really see yeah. that. Yeah, well, Princeton has, <laughs> yeah, has but the resources. For. One country. thing I
0: noticed about Princeton is there are gardens everywhere, and everywhere there's a garden, you seem to see a gardener working so, yes. Lucky so, them. Yeah, lucky them. So, what happened to Ferrand's plans and, and why did she leave? I mean, why wasn't she allowed to fully implement the plan that she had come up with?
1: That is the great irony of this narrative that a progressive women's college uh-huh. who was eager to, you know, at exactly the moment when they were eager yeah. to equip women for the study and practice of landscape architecture was not able to sustain a relationship. Uh, a working relationship with the path-breaking she, foremost Yeah, she woman could have retired in here and set up her
0: studio here couldn't she? I mean, if she wanted to uh, Well, she had three area, offices yeah. actually yeah, at I mean, that she, point in time yeah, yeah, I mean, she, she was yeah. at the
1: height of her career in yeah. her 50s she had uh, she traveled extensively yeah. and she would come up on the train from New York yeah. uh, for the day but it, it took me a while of, of sifting through correspondence to get to this but the extraordinary letters and documents in the archives enabled me to sort of assemble this fine-grained picture of what did go wrong, and it Mm -hmm. was a perfect storm Uh of several Uh factors, some of which she encountered everywhere. A woman supervising men in in the field was a very difficult position to be in then, and her upbringing at the pinnacle of New York society was a role that she Fostered. I mean, she was known for her imperiousness, which well, didn't you, always sit well with her clients at all. Though. Well,
0: that salon, Edith Wharton's. I mean, Henry James was part of it, wasn't he? So uh, she must have a sense of her, her own privilege, I'm sure. So yeah. she
1: did. And she, uh, um, Teresa Way, has discussed how the landscape historian how Ferrand both kept up her role as a woman in society at that level, and also uh, a steely uh, professional yeah. who yeah, expected uh-huh. to be yeah, treated yeah. exactly like any other yeah, professional yeah, in the yeah, field. Yeah, it was yeah. interesting. She wore both hats, which was obviously difficult. But she navigated those shoals at Yale and Princeton over decades, yeah. whatever difficulties yeah, uh-huh. she encountered. So uh, Vassar, for one thing, she preferred total control over her projects, yeah. and so did Vassar. Yeah. They really were not at all happy about yeah. handing over control to an outsider, uh, as we heard at any point in history. And at that point in time, the McCracken administration was young. This was the first big project they had done. There were completely divergent ideas on campus about what her role and authority should be.
0: Politically, he was on shaky ground in the beginning, wasn't he? Because the trustees tried to fire him at one time, or he had enemies, certainly.
1: Yeah, that's something that uh, Helen Lefkowitz Horowitz has written about in her terrific book, Alma Mater. Although, when I talked to our current campus historian, Colton Johnson, He thinks that account is slightly overblown. There were a couple uh, of trustees uh, that kind of had it in for him, you know, and tried to stage a coup. It wasn't that the whole,
0: you know, he he lost... He was like FDR, somewhat revolutionary, especially following on the heels of Taylor. And so there would have been some resistance, I'm sure. Absolutely. Uh, Conservative elements, yeah. yeah. So, you know, however
1: serious the threat was, he had just come through this and was now negotiating his way with the board, at least part of which had tried to oust him. So... Absolutely. So they were kind of still figuring out how they wanted to do things, what the role of an outsider should be in this young administration. Obviously, Vassar had far fewer financial resources than she was able to command in places like Yale and Princeton. But I think one of the, probably the most important factor was the groundskeeper, Henry Downer, who was Uh so territorial. He was a Q-educated botanist Uh from the Isle of Wight, and he felt his authority seriously threatened by Farron's involvement. And he pitched several fits and actually got a competing offer from Cornell and threatened to quit over her being here. But he was a trusted local person on campus. They didn't want to lose him. So the trustees basically capitulated and gave him control over the Arboretum to placate him and get him to stay while Ferrand was still designing it. And he subsequently took credit for her ideas Uh about the Arboretum. So uh, from that point on, she kept saying, can somebody please clarify for me what the responsibilities are? And nobody was, and the the missives were going back and forth kind of behind the scenes. So he basically saw to it that her authority was so reduced that she really couldn't get much done. So that was basically what happened to her plans, and after about five years, she offered her resignation and Uh said, I don't feel like I'm getting much traction or getting uh much done here, which, you know, is obviously a shame. It's interesting that ultimately Vassar focused on multiple discrete projects rather than an overall vision or uh project, and in part, you know, that had been the long-standing MO, right? It was a heterogeneous, picturesque landscape. It wasn't a holistically planned one and a favorite and eclectic mix, which has fostered a certain aesthetic, which is fine. What is lost in that is that it denied the college the opportunity to work with one designer over time, Uh which especially for plants is a crucial component of landscape design, right? Uh the long durée kind of growth and change and development of living materials over time. And it was a particular loss in the case of Farron, who devoted so much attention to the dynamics of garden development Uh over time. So it seems like ultimately her Vassar clients didn't fully appreciate you know, either the value of a unified landscape plan or Farron's very sophisticated melding of the aesthetic, educational, ecological values uh-huh. through campus designs, uh-huh. you know, that she was getting at. But her tenure here was important, even if it was short, I would argue. Deanna Belmori, the uh-huh. landscape architect and historian who actually, as you know, worked here and yeah, designed uh,
0: the Loeb Center Garden, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah.
1: Has written I think very brilliantly on and I had intended to see if I could meet with her and it was my okay. great disappointment that she died while I was working on this and I didn't get a chance to. But Belmory has noted that it was specifically in her campus work that Farron created a philosophy of landscaping. And Farron wrote very little about her work and archived yeah. very little of her correspondence Any place. Yeah, she wasn't a
0: theorist, particularly, I mean, in terms of a, a writer, was she? Uh, what she
1: did write was terribly interesting, but she uh, didn't write yeah, very much. Uh, yeah. So the campus archives end up becoming crucial resources for understanding what it was she was yeah. trying to achieve. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So the fact that we have this sort of extraordinary record and can uh. piece together what her ideas were through many of these meeting notes, plans, and everything else is an important record of her thinking, even though it was... Can you
0: talk a bit more about that, your research? Because our program is, to some extent, about that kind of research. And there is material in the archives. What archives? Mostly our archives are spread out, you know various institutions. Are her papers elsewhere?
1: It was a combination. Her own archives are in the Berkeley Environmental Design Archives, Uh although there were no documents about this project there. There were a handful of grainy photos that she took evidently Uh on her first trip to Vassar, Uh and a whole bunch of plans, only one of which had ever been published. And then all of the letters back and forth from her to her meeting minutes, trustee minutes, other correspondence were here in our archive. And I started it as a teaching project, and I tapped my uh-huh. then-student, Virginia Duncan, yeah. who did a remarkable job working with the archivists here. I mean, we all yeah. sat down together at the beginning and uh-huh. identified the scope of where she had been when. Yeah. Yeah. And then Ginny did a remarkable job of collecting documents and trustee minutes, photos of the areas and buildings she worked uh-huh. on, which oh. we laid out physically, uh-huh. you know, and, oh, and okay. long tables, yeah. and so we could kind of track things visually, yeah. changes visually over time. And then out at Berkeley, a former student, Michaela Batso, was uh, yeah. in landscape architecture school there at the time. So she went in the archives for us and sent oh, us pictures, you, yeah. you know, uh-huh. quick oh, pictures. Great. So yeah. we had working images of the documents. This was before we had gotten some funds. So and you bought. a team bought of your stuff. own
0: students working with you on this. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah.
1: You know, my students, somebody else's, former students, archivists here. So there were, you know, it was really quite a group project. And then I invited Judith Tankard, who was kind of the reigning Farron expert, here uh-huh. to give a lecture. And we organized, when she was here, a campus walk uh-huh. with Farron's plans in uh-huh. hand. By this uh-huh. point, we had done quite a bit of yeah. research. And so we included Judith Tankard, our head of grounds at the time, Jeff Horst, our uh-huh. gardener, Jay Schism. And from the Beatrix Farron Garden Association, uh, Karen strain Smythe, the executive director and the horticulturist, Dan Cleve Sims who have subsequently produced a great movie on Farron's life. Oh, happy! Which just came out this year. Uh. Uh, at any rate, so oh. all of us trooped around with these plans in hand discussing Farron. You know, everybody yeah. who kind of knew something about Farron that we uh-huh. could get to come with Farron's plans in hand walked around discussing this. Ginny uh, wrote a paper for my class yeah. on it, and then I analyzed the plans myself. I went back to our archives and deepened the research and wrote the article. Uh-huh. So... You know, it's something that I launched and I, and I wrote, but it would never have happened without oh, the input of yeah. especially Ginny and then many other people.
0: Oh, wow. So the film, is it a documentary, or are we going to show it, or have you shown it? I missed it. Uh, uh, we
1: haven't yet. It just had its world premiere at the New York Botanical Garden this March, oh, which did? I okay, attended. and They're organizing screenings, and oh, I know okay. one. we want to have one at Vassar. Yeah, We're still talking yeah, about it. It doesn't discuss her time at Vassar, but... We need to
0: do that. Yeah. Okay, yeah, no, it sounds fascinating. So the question is, are there any morals here or lessons to be drawn, perhaps by a future or even maybe a present campus planning committee? Should students be more involved in uh, decision-making processes that uh, affect the way campuses are designed? Should faculty be more involved? Is there more or less transparency today than than there was in the past? All kinds of questions, some of them, you know, maybe... uh, vexed a bit so um.
1: now reading this history made me think a lot about those questions yeah, of how uh-huh. we you know how oh, we how do we, how, do, how uh, we uh, do them uh, today and, and what if anything has changed I think an ideal campus planning process would certainly include students and faculty as well as trustees and administrators and you know back in the 20s President McCracken was quick to point out that those who live and work on a campus must be crucial voices in the design process uh-huh. which makes sense yeah. but of course one also needs, Talented outsiders. Yeah. It shouldn't all be done in-house. On an, you know, uh, another hand, design projects offer a wonderful educational opportunity. I mean, Ideally, uh-huh. there would be competitions yeah. in which various designs can be studied ideally. by <laughs> the whole yes. community. Yes. So yeah. every, everybody learns something, and there's an opportunity for feedback. So you know, obviously it's crucial to have design professionals involved. We have a master planning faculty committee, uh-huh. but which often has only one architect on it. Uh, And I think we need more voices. You know, large universities have an office of the architect, office of the landscape architect. I wish we had a visiting committee, you know, that uh might comprise, say, Uh Uh distinguished architects, landscape architects, ecologists, historians Uh of architecture and landscape. You know, I understand too much oversight is too much oversight, but an engaged you know, sort of educated, in, in, inclusive yeah. model of planning yeah. is, is often when you get the most exciting, yeah, exciting sure. results. Yeah.
0: So you do teach a class on campus architecture, yes? I mean, campus landscape architecture, but architecture generally, yeah. I do. Yeah. I, you know,
1: I teach a uh, landscape history course that uh-huh. starts with Italian villas and gardens yeah. Yeah. and ends up with Italian gardens in the Hudson Valley. Uh-huh. Well, so that that's one course that I flows out of your interest in Italian villas, yeah, yeah, exactly, absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, and as an outgrowth, actually, of this faring research, I decided to teach a course on the campus, uh-huh. history of architecture, landscape, collections... A 100-level course targeted at students who wouldn't necessarily think to take an art history class. So I am just heading into the last week of the the first generation now, and it's been a tremendous amount of fun. Yeah, it
0: seems there's a more and more interest in people doing institutional histories than I've seen in the past. I mean, you're not the only person interested in like campus and not just its built environment but its history so sort of, per se and uh, i was myself at a, a library conference in venice and it was all about institutional history so in, Lucy's, in, lucy it, sammons yeah, idea exactly full, exactly full, yeah, full yeah, circle. yeah they were absolutely fascinated by lucy sammons she
1: wrote those great essays uh you know history in my backyard about yeah. a summer she couldn't go to europe and do the research she wanted to do and what yeah. she could learn from her backyard, yeah, and, and you, that was you, when she posed the the question it. is, is Main Street Poughkeepsie any less beautiful than the Champs-Élysées? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And of course, the answer is yes. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but she also but says, yeah. is it less important? You it, know, yeah. What can we do with yeah. it while we're in Poughkeepsie? Yeah, no, no,
0: she also has this wonderful essay on using the library as an archaeological you know, artifact to think about the history of documentary records and history per se, where the library becomes uh, an object of study in and of itself. That's a terrific
1: right. idea. I mean, I, I can't say that that's what I'm doing, but my students are certainly using the library, I mean, um, at every level. The advanced yeah, students, yeah. the 100-level students, and, and everybody in the campus course, they are delving into yeah. special collections as well, physical and electronic, to work on various aspects of the campus. What of the things you see is that campus history is is written by people who study and teach there typically so you know hopefully this will not only be a teaching course but something that plows information back into the. well
0: there's a lot here to think about there's a lot of potential here potential for developing narratives for fundraising for one thing that kind of thing. It is important to know your own institution. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not
1: looking to, to make this a development opportunity, but, uh, but the whole idea of having everybody, all the stakeholders who are involved, be knowledgeable about yeah. their history, about ways of planning is, is so important. Most campuses have experienced singular moments when all things aligned for good planning, and then other moments of mediocrity or, or missteps. So how do we read these investors' past? How do we change the conversation going forward? Educated, inclusive planning,
0: especially now that liberal arts are under fire, uh, and we have to rethink what we do all the time. It's important to have a sense of of history. I mean, to inform these decisions, isn't it? Absolutely.
1: College campuses offer models of progressive ideal Uh spaces and and cultures, and. So that whole idea of how you engage with nature, with good design, with good stewardship of the past, good planning for the future, it's a model for fostering human interaction, human action. So campuses have a progressive, noble social mission. Yeah,
0: they do. And you don't get it elsewhere in very many places in the culture. I mean, everything is about business, isn't it? There's not much public space.
1: The past informs the present, and an institution's history is always a vital element. Uh-huh. of intelligent planning and good planning should be a priority
0: so I'd like to thank you Yvonne for visiting with us today in the library cafe to talk about your article Beatrix Ferrand and Campus Landscape Advisor: Vassar a Pedagogy and Practice 1925 to 1929 you do have a co-author Virginia Duncan yes yeah. yes yeah, that was yes. your student yes, yeah, wh- yes. Wh- okay yeah yeah thanks very much
1: thank you Tom